Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 is where we're going to start. Before we get there, I just want to kind of set this up a little bit. Um, if you've been with us, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. I think this is week 11 or something like that. Um, and Paul has been sort of like, the first chapter, chapter 1, was like this giant like worship response that Paul had to the goodness and grace of Jesus. So there's like 23 verses or 20 or so verses roughly of like, just like, praise. Uh, if you were to read that uh, section in its original language, you would discover that it was it's kind of like a run-on sentence. It's like as if Paul is so uh, overwhelmed with the goodness and grace of God that he just can't stop talking about it. It's like he doesn't know what to say, so he just keeps talking about how good God is. And he kind of paints this sort of lofty theological picture of the goodness of Jesus. And then as we head into chapter 2, what the Apostle Paul is doing as he's writing this letter to this group of churches in this part of the world is he's, um, he's helping us take those like rich... Uh, lofty, grand visions of Jesus and the grace of God. And he's actually like kind of applying them in the most practical of ways so that we can understand how the significance of the glory of God gets worked out in the everyday stuff of life, which is really, really important. Uh, because when we talk about the book of Ephesians, and a lot of times when we talk about just the Bible in general, we can often disconnect it from our reality. We can disconnect it from like the, and when I say our reality, I just mean our lived experience. Like how does this actually work itself out in our lived experience? And Paul's actually putting on display how theological ideas, concepts, visions specifically of Jesus work themselves out in our, in our ordinary lives. And what many have said about this book in particular, this letter, I guess, uh, is a better, a better way of referring to it in particular, is that this is actually Paul's best work on what it means to be the church. And when I say means to be the church, I just mean means to be a follower of Jesus amongst a community of those who are also trying to follow Jesus. Uh, some have said of this letter that this is uh, Paul's constitution of the church. That if you were to sit him down and say, give us your best writing on the church, he would take this letter, slap it down on the table and say, here, read, read the letter I wrote to the church in Ephesus. Read the letter of Ephesians. And so as we get into the text today, what you're going to see is that Paul's going to get very, very, very practical in how he applies the finished work of Jesus. So let's, let's get right to work because I got, I'll be honest, I told Nathan, I said, it's, it's not an hour sermon, but it's not a 40 minute sermon. So it's somewhere in the middle, but I'm going to try really hard to stick to that 40 minute mark, but no promises. Okay, here we go. Ephesians chapter two, verse 11. Here is what the Apostle Paul starts with. He says this. He says, therefore. Okay, Bible. Uh, I don't remember much from Bible college. Okay, but here's what I remember. So $20,000. Here you go, right here. Whenever you come to the word therefore, you should always stop and ask, what's that? Therefore. Okay, so what Paul is doing here is he's picking up where we left off last week. So last week he talked very specifically about how the grace of God works itself out in our individual lives. Well, today what he's going to do is he's going to take those same themes, but now he's going to apply them to the corporate nature of the church. What does it mean to be us? Okay, so this is, this is pretty, pretty significant. So therefore, in light of everything I've said so far about who Jesus is, about how that works itself out in your personal life, remember, he's going to say this twice in verse 11 and 12, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called, uh, called uncircumcised, we'll come back and not talk about what that is, because hopefully you know what that is, but what Paul means when he says this, those who were called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done uh, in the body by human hands, verse 12, remember there's a second time that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope, without God in the world. So what is the apostle Paul saying here? Well, he's verses 11 to 22 sort of form themselves in a very similar way that verses 1 through 10 form themselves. You remember from last week, verses 1 through 10, the first three verses, the Apostle Paul says, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to try and remember what your life looked like before you knew Jesus. In other words, I'm going to tell you the bad news before I tell you the good news. Well, here in these verses from 11 to 22, he's doing the same thing. He's going to start by telling us the bad news. And you'll notice here, the first thing that he addresses 
And, and you might not notice it because it's a little bit veiled, but I'll, I'll help us see it. The first thing he addresses is the reality that within the church, there is a significant conflict. Uh, that's what all this circumcision language, all this circumcision talk in verse 11 is all about. Okay, so it's helpful for us to kind of understand the landscape that Paul's speaking into in order to understand exactly what he's saying here. So if you're familiar with the story of God, uh, Jesus came out of the Jewish lineage. So as Jesus uh, came, was teaching and preaching and healing and doing his ministry, he was actually Jewish. And so the first followers of Jesus were, were Jewish. In fact, many of the first followers of Jesus were Jewish. But as Jesus continued to do his ministry, as he continued uh, to preach and heal and proclaim the good news of the kingdom, as the church grew and expanded, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but, but what started to happen were, was that those who were outside of the Jewish community, in other words, Gentiles, so Gentiles is biblical nomenclature for non-Jewish, Gentiles, non-Jews, you and me, started coming to faith in Jesus, started to receive the message that Jesus was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and they started to follow Jesus. And so something started to happen. Within the Christian community, you had these two groups that were, were trying to coexist as followers of Jesus. On one hand, you have the Jewish community. On the other hand, you have the Gentile community. And what is happening here, what Paul is trying to put his finger on, is what is the, perhaps the most significant issue in the New Testament church. And this is how do the Jews and the Gentiles get along? It sounds absolutely and utterly ridiculous to even say this, but there was a lot of division in the church around circumcision. Thanks be to God that's not an issue in the church today, amen? But it was a huge deal in the first century church. And the reason for it, and again, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but it's important for us to understand. In Genesis chapter 17, which is actually perhaps one of the most pivotal chapters in the entire uh, story of God, the arc of the story of God, God made a covenant with a man named Abraham, and he said, through your offspring, the nations will be blessed, a great nation will be formed, and, and I'm going to do a great work. He made a covenant, a promise with Abraham. And the sign of that promise was the sign of circumcision. If you go back and read uh, Genesis chapter 17, I, I went and looked at it just briefly uh, in preparing for today. Abraham, he, as a result of God's work in his life, had to be circumcised. Guess how old he was? 99. Like, that's a bad day. Hey, that's a, that's a super bad day. Yeah, it's like, I'm good. I'm good. No covenant for me. But what ended up happening was that this, this, this sign of circumcision became a, a symbol, something that was held up by, by the Jews as their, uh, their righteous standing before God. And what it started to create within them was a sense of self-righteousness. But here's, what it, here's the way that that worked itself out. Uh, the Jewish people had disdain and hostility for those who were non-Jewish. They, they absolutely hated them. They treated them like dogs. William uh, Barclay, who's a, a, a biblical scholar, he has a quote uh, on this issue. And this is what he said. He said, the Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentiles. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fit for the fires of hell. God said, uh, God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her uh, hour of sorest need, in other words, in childbirth, for that would simply bring, sorry, that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or vice versa, a funeral was held for the Jewish boy or girl because such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. In other words, for the Jewish people, this, this issue of circumcision was massive. And anybody who was not a part of their covenant community was treated with contempt or disdain. Now, what's ironic, if you go back and read Genesis chapter 17, the Abrahamic covenant, God promises to bless the nation of Israel, but he wants to bless them so that they will be a blessing to the nations, not so that they will think that they have a unique, special relationship with God themselves. But what starts to happen now within the New Testament church is you have all these Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus. 
And you have all these Jews who have their Jewish culture, their Jewish heritage, their Jewish religion, their Jewish laws. They're bringing all that to the table. The Gentiles are bringing their culture, their language, their values to the table, and it's creating conflict. Now, thankfully, the Apostle Paul, if you want to read about this, the book of Galatians is a letter he wrote to a church in Galatia. He, he kind of deals with this. And he's like, summary, right? He's like, you guys got to knock it off. He said, this, this, is not, this is not the issue that you need to make, uh, you know, div- this is not the issue you need to divide over. You, this is not the thing that is going to de- delineate whether someone is, gets to be a part of the kingdom of heaven or not. He, you know, someone is not going to go to heaven because they're circumcised, and somebody's not going to not go to heaven because they aren't. And the Apostle Paul says, it, it's, it's no more. It's no more. But here in the uh, church in Ephesus, it was still an issue. What the Apostle Paul is doing here, and it's, it's important for us, if you were sitting in this church reading this letter that he's writing, and you read or heard verses 11 and 12 read out loud, it would be like him putting his finger on like the most significant elephant in the room. Like there would be a collective gasp over him addressing this issue in a public way. And, and what he's doing, essentially, is he's saying, calling out, if you will, the church for their division. Now, now again, th- thanks be to God, we, this is not an issue for us, right? Like, today, after the gathering, we have a New to West Village lunch, you're all welcome. Thankfully, like, we don't have a New to West Village circumcision, right? Like, it's just, it's a New to West Village lunch. <laughs> Come on out. Like if it's if it was the other, it's like who's coming to that, right? Like I'm good. Like I I actually wonder like how many adult male converts to Judaism are there? Like you can't have bacon and you have to get circumcised. Like this does not seem like a religion I would want to sign up for. But this is this is not the issue we're dividing over in our church. That was a joke, by the way. You're all like it's kind of like a collective groan. <laughs> oh. Uh, but this is, this is not the issue we divide over, but there, if there's anything we've learned over the last couple of years, there's a lot of issues that have caused division within the church, right? Lots of divisions, political divisions. There's been tons of divisions over COVID. And in fact, the apostle Paul, when he uses this language of circumcised and uncircumcised, like these, he's not talking necessarily about the physical act. What he's actually using here is like pejorative language that they would have used to refer to one another as. Right? So it would have been like, oh, you're an anti-vaxxer or you're just a sheeple. Right? You're conservative or you're liberal. These are, you know, you're pro-life or pro-choice. You're pro-this, you're anti-that. Whatever it is, like we, we pick these things, these terms, and then we, we start to like sling them at one another. And what ends up happening is they cause division amongst the body of Christ. And what the Apostle Paul wants to address in Ephesians chapter 2, in this set of verses in particular, is how these are not the things that the church is supposed to divide over. In fact, that's what he's going to say in verse 12. If you look at verse 12 with me, look at what he says. So he deals with this issue of division within the church in verse 11, verse 12. He says, remember, now he's speaking specifically here of the Gentiles. But he's not only speaking of the Gentiles, because if you go back to Genesis chapter 16, so the chapter before the Abrahamic covenant, all of the things he is about to say of the Gentiles were also true of the Jews. So verse 12, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. So what the Apostle Paul is doing in verse 12 is he's coming in and he's reminding the Gentile Christians in particular, which would include all of us, I would think most of us, probably all of us. But he's also, he's hinting to the Jewish Christians about their past before their relationship with God of who they actually were. Here's what he's doing. He's trying to level the playing field. If you remember from last week, verses 1 to 3, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, the Apostle Paul said you were dead in your sins and transgressions. You, you were enslaved to the world, to Satan, to the flesh. You were by nature objects of wrath. Right? In other words, like there's not a whole lot. You don't have a whole lot going for you before Christ. Right? That's what he's saying here as well. Now, now why does he do it this way? 
He starts by addressing the divisions, and then he goes on to remind the church of what they were like apart from Christ. Why does he do this? Because here's what happens. When we recognize our own brokenness, our own neediness, when we recognize, like Jesus says to the church in Laodicea in Revelation uh, chapter 3, we are blind, naked, wretched, poor, hopeless, homeless, helpless, nationless, far from God. We have nothing in and of ourselves that we can bring to the table, nothing that, that makes us worthy of anything. When we are in that place, here's what happens. All the things that we think are important, are no longer important. It, it, it takes away any ability you and I have to be self-righteous when we are actually able to look at ourselves in a mirror and use sober judgment and assess the state of our soul apart from Christ. Here's what it does. It kills pride. It kills our pride. Because whenever there's division amongst a group of people, often, not always, but often, what is happening is this. We're taking secondary issues, we're taking tertiary issues, and we're elevating them to, to, to primary issues. And then what we're doing is we're looking at anybody else who doesn't hold our opinion, who doesn't hold our perspective on those secondary issues, and we look down on them. In other words, we come at this conversation from a place of self-righteousness. I'm better. I have it right. They have it wrong. I'm smart. They're dumb. Whatever it is. But what the Apostle Paul does here, he comes in and he absolutely levels the ground, levels the playing field. And he says, none of those things matter. Now, I want to be clear about something here. Paul's going to address how we unify in just a second. So we'll get there in just a second. I want to make sure I'm being heard. Because what I am not saying is that we cannot have differing values and opinions on a myriad of topics and issues. That is not what I'm saying. I am, this, Paul is not, like, like his remedy to this situation is not going to be for all the Gentiles to get circumcised or for all the Jewish guys in the church to miracle grow, right? Like it's just, it's not what his remedy is going to be. He's not calling for uniformity, right? Like uniformity at this point is, is biologically impossible, He's calling for unity. And so the, the, the church should not be a place where we have uniformity. Like I, I, I am, I, I celebrate. Okay, I celebrate. Like last Sunday we preached a sermon. And, and I, I would imagine that like it, it was red meat for those of you who are followers of Jesus, been in church for a long time. Right, red meat. Like you just love it, eating it up, right? Oh, that was so good. I got so many text messages, emails, pats on the back afterwards. You go get them, Pastor. You get those sinners, and you, you know, like it was just like woohoo. That's okay. It was, you know, it, it was a good sermon. I'll just throw it out there, okay? But I actually celebrate the reality that that there were people in our community that probably didn't agree with some of the things I had to say. That it was, it was actually hard for them to hear that. It's, it's actually good. right? It, it, if you think about the, the, the ministry of Jesus, if you think about his 12 disciples, the, the, the men that he called, and, and he called women as well to be some of his first followers, the diversity within that community was extreme. There was socioeconomic diversity. There was political diversity. There was all kinds of different opinions and perspectives. You can read about the disagreements and the fights that they had in the gospel accounts of, of Jesus' life. But they unified around Christ. They figured out how to sort that stuff out to be unified around Jesus. And so the invitation that Paul is giving us here is not to just all have the same political views and the same views on COVID and the same views on vaccines and the same views on masks and the same views on this issue or that issue. The invitation of the Apostle Paul to the church is to recognize that most of, many of, 
almost all the things I just cited, while they may be important, they are not primary. Secondary at best. In fact, I would argue, and it may seem silly to say this in you know, 2022 or whatever year it is, circumcision in this church would have been closer to a primary issue than anything we have wrestled through in the last couple of years has been. And his invitation is to set those things aside, not to not have opinions, not to not have perspectives, not to not hold on to those things dearly, but to unify around Christ. To unify around the gospel of Jesus. You know, if there's one thing, you know, many of us have grown cynical over the last couple of years, right? Cynical of the government, cynical of public health, cynical of many of the institutions in our Western society. To be fair, I personally haven't because I never really had a ton of faith in them anyway. I've grown a little cynical of the church. As I've watched, myself included, be willing to sling mud at those who don't hold the same opinion as me and others to literally cut off their arm, divide over secondary issues. I'm not saying that it's easy. In fact, it's really hard. But what the Apostle Paul is inviting the church to do here is remember who you were apart from Christ. Because here's what happens when you recognize how needy you are. Jesus looks amazing. And you kind of can't see anything else in that moment. He goes on. He says this in verse uh, verse 13. But now, now this is very similar to the trajectory of the last 10 verses we read. Verses 1 to 3, I'm going to tell you about how broken and desperate uh, and needy you are. And then he says, but for God. And now he's going to say, but now. In other words, this is going to hinge a little bit, okay? So that's who you were. That's how, how needy you were. That was your state apart from Christ. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you uh, who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So in other words, you have this Gentile community who were considered by all accounts far from God. And here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. They're being brought near by the, by the blood of Christ. In other words, by Jesus' shed blood on the cross in their place for their sins. He's going to flesh that out in the next couple of verses, uh, how that specifically gets worked out. We'll, we'll get into that. But, but here's what I want you to see. He's saying they too have been brought near. So, so what he's trying to say to the church is like, hey, hey, hey guys, you're all part of the same community. Like they were far and you felt like you were near, but they are now being brought in. In other words, they're just like you. He's speaking to the the Jewish Christians in the church and he's saying like, do you know who these people are? These people who you slander, these people who you speak ill against, these these people who you think are dumb or who aren't as good at at following Jesus as you are, who don't get it. Do Do you know who they actually are? Those are people that Jesus shed his blood for who were once far that he has brought near. And then look at what he says next, verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and notice what he says here, and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So again, context, he's speaking to this divided church, divided over this ethnic issue, it's functional racism, spiritual racism that is taking place in the church. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to show them how by the blood of Christ, they've actually been made one. And he uses a phrase here in verse 14. It's an important one for you to underline. He says, he made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Paul's, he's kind of pulling on a metaphor here. He's been alluding to it in the first few verses, but now he's getting very, very specific and he's going to continue with this theme through the rest of the verses. And the metaphor is the metaphor of the Jewish temple. 
So again, he's, he's trying to, and I want you to see this, okay? Because it's actually really beautiful what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's trying to unify the church. And the way that he's trying to unify the church is by showing those who are closest or who, who perceive themselves, I think it's important to word it like this, who perceive themselves as closest to the person and work of Jesus. He's trying to show them that those who they perceive as furthest are actually just as close as them. So, so it's, again, for those of us who have been following Jesus for a long time, he's kind of speaking to us about those who are outside of the church. Okay, those who, who feel like they're on the outside of God's covenant community and promises. Those who maybe are here this morning and don't feel like they fit in, like the rest of us all fit in. Or those who are in our city and they don't feel like they fit in in the same way that we fit in. They, there's a lot of people in our city that would say to you something like this, I could never go to a church gathering because I don't belong. The Apostle Paul is speaking to us, those who feel comfortable walking in here, and he's trying to convey to us that there are a group of people out there who he is breaking down the wall of hostility to invite them in. He's actually broken the wall down. And the way he does this is with this metaphor of the temple. So the temple was this this giant, ornate building in the city of Jerusalem. Where, where the people of God would come for corporate worship. They, they had synagogues in their smaller villages and towns, but several times throughout the year, the people of God would come to the temple and it would be the place where they would come to have their sins forgiven. It would be the place where they would come and have festivals and they would experience the fullness of the grace of God in, in very practical ways. Like the gospel, the, the grace of God bestowed upon the nation of Israel would be played out in, in very visible ways. And the temple itself was even a picture of the way that God was choosing to work amongst the people. And if you could just imagine with me this giant, massive building in the middle of the city of Jerusalem. And at the very center of the temple was this room called the Holy of Holies. And this is where the presence of God actually dwelt. And around the Holy of Holies, and you'll notice a theme here, there was a giant, this was a room, it was a completely walled-in room. And then on the outside of that was what they called the Temple of the Priests. And the temple of the priests is where the priests could go and they would perform their religious duties and their sacrifices. Once a year, they would actually go into the Holy of Holies. This would be on the Day of Atonement, but they would have to do all kinds of religious ceremonies to actually be considered clean enough to go in there. But only the priests were allowed to be in the temple of the priests. And then around the temple of the priests was a giant wall. Okay, just notice the theme, a giant wall. And then outside, the, the court of the priests was the court of Israel. And the court of Israel is where the men of the nation of Israel were allowed to come and worship. Only the men of the nation of Israel. And then around the the court of Israel was another giant wall. And the next court was the court of the women. And the women of the nation of Israel were permitted to be in that space for corporate worship. Around that court, again, a giant wall. And you would go through a door, and there would be five stairs that led to a platform with another giant wall. And you went through a door that would lead 14 stairs, down 14 stairs to another platform with another giant wall. And then you would go through one more door, and you would enter into what is called the Court of the Gentiles. And this is where the Gentiles were permitted to worship. The other people who were permitted to be in that space were the lepers, were those who were, who were deemed unclean spiritually, physically. And it was basically the place where the outcast could come. Now, I want you to understand something here for a second. When I say the court of the Gentiles, I'm talking about Gentiles who were actually trying to become a part of the covenant community of God. So this isn't just non-believing Gentiles. These are God-fearing Gentiles who want to worship the God of Israel. And here is what the people of God had done in the construction of their temple. They had created this space where the Gentiles were forced to be on the outside. And the temple was this giant, living, breathing picture of the division within the church. And notice what the Apostle Paul says. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace. This is verse 14. Who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. 
What's he saying? He's saying all the barriers between Gentile and Jew, they've been destroyed. They've been destroyed. They've been taken down. There is now no more hostility between Jew and Gentile. There is now no more thing that divides because I'm making you one. How how are they being made one? What does he say? Verse 13, he says it very clearly. They have been brought near. The Gentiles have been from the outer court, brought from the outer court to the inner court. How have they been brought near? By the blood of Christ. So everything you think about that other person that disqualifies them from the grace of God because of their parents' decision, uh, you know, what they did with little Johnny in terms of circumcision when he was born, that doesn't apply anymore. The thing that you think disqualifies someone from the grace of God no longer disqualifies them. Why? Because what qualifies a person for the grace of God? It's not circumcision. What is it? It's the blood of Christ. So if only the blood of Christ can qualify you for the grace of God, what then can disqualify you from the grace of God? Nothing. I want you to think about that for a second. That, like, like we like to sing about our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. But, but what Paul is saying is that there, there is nothing a person can do that will keep them outside of God's grace because the blood of Christ, his death on the cross for their sins is what brings them in. So, I mean, I I got a long list here of things that are hang-ups for us in the Western church. And there's a long list of people who identify as all kinds of different things. And you could summarize those identities as outside of the grace of God. I don't belong here. And what Paul is saying is the blood of Christ can take them from far and bring them near. So, so when it comes to when it comes to what it means to be the church, gosh, th- this place should be full of diversity. Not just racial diversity, not just ethnic diversity, but like political diversity, like you name it. There should be all kinds of different preferences and thoughts and imaginations and ideas within this room because Jesus is doing a work in all of our lives to take us from far and to bring us near. And it, it's not moral conformity. It's not uh, religious conformity. It's not belief conformity. It's not political conformity. It is conformity to the blood of Jesus for my sins that takes me from far and brings me to near, which means this place should be full of all kinds of brokenness, all kinds of sin, all kinds of ideas and thoughts, because Jesus is the one who brings us in. Now, that doesn't mean we don't get conformed to the image of his likeness. It doesn't mean over time our opinions and our perspectives and our thoughts and our ways of living aren't going to change. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is they are not a prerequisite for entry into the kingdom of heaven. So we should expect that when we come to gather in a corporate way, in the way that we are gathered right now that is very diverse. In fact, it should terrify us if we come into a church building and everyone thinks, looks, talks, speaks, believes exactly the same. And you agree with everything the preacher says every single time he preaches or she preaches. It should terrify you. Because it might be a community that's not defined by the blood of Jesus, but it's actually defined by a whole bunch of other secondary issues that you've all decided to agree upon. 
And the preacher preaches on those secondary issues in such a way that if you don't believe the same way the community believes, then you don't feel like you belong. And so you, you don't complain about it because nobody ever complains before they leave. They just leave. And what you're stuck with is a homogenous community that isn't unified around Jesus. You might sing songs to Jesus. You might hear sermons about Jesus. But it's Jesus plus circumcision. The Apostle Paul is saying, I'm breaking down the dividing wall of hostility and I'm bringing those who are far I'm bringing them near by my blood. Keeps going. Verse 15, by setting aside, this is how he does it, okay? So for he himself, we'll go back to verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law, its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Verse 18, For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So, so what is the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying a whole bunch of things, and I'm, I'm just going to give us like a, sh- like a shotgun here on what he's saying. He's saying, for those of you who think that uh, your, your standing before God hinges on your obedience to the law, so he's speaking specifically to the Jewish Christians, but let's be honest, those of us inside the church, we often think that our, our following of Jesus, our standing before God, our righteousness before God, hinges on our outward religious obedience. He's saying that is not the case. That's exactly what he says here in verse 15. He says he set aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Now I want to be clear about something. What Jesus is, or what Paul is not saying is that the law no longer has kind of any, any bearing or any weight in our lives. He, Jesus makes that very clear in the Sermon on the Mount. He says he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says. He set it aside in his flesh. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the law is the thing that is not the thing that saves you because you could never keep the law. Jesus in his flesh kept the law perfectly. And because he kept the law perfectly in your place on your behalf you get the righteousness of Christ when Jesus goes to the cross in your place for your sins he lived the life that you should have lived and he died the death that you deserve to die and then look at what he says next his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Notice what Paul says. This is beautiful here. He says you got these two groups of people who are so utterly different, so utterly diverse, religiously, historically, ethnically, they're diverse. But here's what I'm doing. I've broken down the wall of their hostility. My blood brought those who were far near. I'm bringing them together to make them one in my body, one new humanity. In other words, here's what he's saying. All those secondary issues, all those other things that you think define who you actually are, they go away. And now we are a new community, unified around the personal work of Jesus. Just think about this for a second. This is worth just dwelling on. For a moment. Do you know what you're a part of right now? Like you woke up this morning and you're like, hey, how's it going, sweetie? It's going good. How you doing? Good. Are we going to go to church today? I don't know. What do you feel like doing? Nah, kids are annoying me. If we go, we can go to Costco after, get a cheap hot dog. Although I heard they're raising the price on those, by the way. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. All right, let's do it. We have this way of treating the church with contempt. Like trivializing it, minimizing it. Like it's this thing that like a country club or a group that we participate in willy-nilly when we feel like it. But 
But what Paul is saying is that what Jesus is doing by his blood is unifying us into a new humanity who are no longer defined by all these other things. I won't turn there. Don't put these, these verses are in the notes, but don't put them on the screen. Galatians 3 goes on just to addressing this issue. He's like, now there's, there's no, these things don't define us. There's, in, in the kingdom of heaven, there's no male, there's no female, there's no slave, there's no free, there's no Greek, there's no, there's no Gentile, there's no Jew. We're all one in Christ. Now, now what he's not saying is there aren't men, there aren't women. Men are men, women are women. Jews are Jews, Gentiles are Gentiles, but what he's saying is those things are now no longer your primary identity. Your primary identity, listen, my primary identity is not Sinusol. It is not Canadian citizen. It is Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a church. It's not this thing you come to when you feel like or this community we participate in because we want to. And it's not this thing that we just bolt when we don't all agree or don't all get along. It's not this thing we can sit at home and participate in in our pajamas on the television. Paul is saying he's, Jesus is making us into a new humanity. And isn't our world that is so, like, just full of division, right? We got politicians that are making their living right now by dividing us. Well, not my guy. Yes, your guy too. Let's divide over that. Okay. We have algorithms dividing us. We have social issues dividing us. Everything. I mean, people are divided. Like literally in the last two years, I have friends who no longer have relationship with their siblings over some of the issues that have been prominent in our culture. And what Paul's inviting the church to be in this moment is this community, not this homogenous community, not this uniformed community, but this united community full of diversity, full of opinions, full of perspectives. But that says we are unified around Christ. I disagree with you on so many things, but they are not even a fraction as important as Jesus. Like, don't you, do you just feel like our world might be hungry for a community like that? Thank you. The Apostle Paul says, this is what I'm doing. This is, this is what I'm creating. Verse 19, or Jesus. Apostle Paul says Jesus is creating this, sorry. Verse 19, I'll, I'll wrap up with these thoughts here. Verse 19, Paul goes on, he says this, consequently. So in other words, he starts by saying, remember who you were. He goes on to talk about what Jesus has done, what he's making us into. And now he's going to show us exactly how this works itself out. Here's what he says. You are no longer foreigners and strangers. Okay, that's what you were. But now you're fellow citizens with God's people, right? So we're one. We're one. We're a nation. And also members of his household. We're not just a nation, but we're a family. There's an intimacy to the nature of our relationship. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Verse 21, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. Here's what he's saying. He's using this temple metaphor again. Remember the temple was this giant picture to the whole world what God was like. It got co-opted by by the Jewish and religious leaders. And here's what Jesus is saying. Here's what Paul is saying. That Jesus is building his church into the new temple. The temple is not the building. The temple is us. He's the cornerstone. He He is the foundational piece. 
He says the apostles are, are the foundation of the temple. In other words, their teachings. And so we stand on the person work of Jesus. We stand on the word of God. And then look at what he says right here in verse uh, 21. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In other words, here's, here's what he's saying. You and I, we become the bricks to that temple. So the temple was this picture of the grace of God. It was a a picture of where God dwelt, where he lived. It was a picture of having your sins forgiven, of being able to meet with the living God. And, And now what the apostle Paul is saying is that Jesus, by his work on the cross, has brought us together and he is making us into this new humanity that is a picture of just that. That when an unbelieving world would have looked at the temple, they would have seen God. When an unbelieving world looks at the church, it is not a community that is defined by secondary issues. It is not a community that gets co-opted by a political party or a political agenda. It It is a community that is radically defined by the person and work of Jesus that takes those who are far and brings them near. In Corinthians, in the first Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, he says, do you not know that you yourselves are temples of the living God? In other words, the presence of God actually dwells within each of us. And the way that we live our lives, the way that we choose to live our lives in this city is actually telling the truth to our city about what God is like. And here's where I'll close. I'll invite the band to come up. Verse 22. Paul says this, And in Him you are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by His Spirit. So God's building us into this temple. He's building us into this new humanity. He's painting a picture for our city of what it actually looks like when those who have a whole bunch of reasons to be divided are unified in the person and work of Jesus. And he says it's in that community that his spirit will come and dwell. And the picture that is being painted for us by the Apostle Paul, it's not that dissimilar to what he says in chapter 1, right at the end of chapter 1, where he says, God placed all things under his feet, being Jesus' feet, and appointed him over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. In chapter 1, he refers to the church as the body of Christ, the ongoing incarnation of Christ. Here in chapter 2, what the Apostle Paul is saying is now the church is like the temple. They're the new temple, the living temple. That we no longer have to go to a place to meet with Jesus. We no longer have to go see a priest to have our sins forgiven. We no longer have to show up to a thing. But we actually have the presence of God with us and we actually walk out of here as the temple of the living God putting on display the grace of God to our city. And what he's saying is if you will unify around Jesus, if you will put aside everything else, Put aside all your perspectives, all your opinions. Not, not forget about them, not hold, not, not hold them, but not allow them to become primary. I will unify you into this beautiful community that will put on display what Jesus actually looks like. And it's an invitation for us to paint a picture for our city of what the grace of God actually looks like. And so the question for us as we close is, is this. Paul uses this image of this dividing wall of hostility. This dividing wall of hostility gets torn down by Jesus. And the question we have to wrestle with is, what is the wall of hostility that God is seeking to break down in our church, but also in our own lives? Where is there a place in our lives, in our church, that God wants to come in, break it down, so that He can do His work in our lives. For some of us, it could be a relationship. For some of us, we might just need to repent of some things that we've held on to that we thought were the most important thing over the last couple of years that aren't actually the most important thing. 
for some of us, it may be sin that we're carrying that Jesus is saying, I want to take that from you. I want to take that away. And I want to invite you in because not only was the wall of hostility between the Gentile court and the people of God, the Jewish people, taken down, but so was the wall of hostility between the Holy of Holies and the people, right? When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn. We have access to the presence of God. And so as we move into a time of response, we're going to move into a time of prayer. We're going to move into a time of taking communion and worshiping together. Here's the question I want you to wrestle with. Jesus, what is it that needs to be torn down in my life that is keeping me, that is keeping me from you? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your work on the cross. We thank you for your goodness and grace in our lives. We thank you that, um, gosh, that you have taken those of us who were far and brought us near. You did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And as we respond, as we meditate and reflect on what you've done for us in going to the cross, Jesus, I pray that you would speak clearly into our hearts. If there is something we need to let go of, bring it to mind that we might let go. If there's a a relationship that we need to reconcile, Jesus, give us the grace to reconcile it. If there is something that has gotten in the way of our ability to put you first, allow us to see it and give us the grace to repent of it, to hand it over to you and to hear your voice that we are forgiven, that it is finished, washed over us. Spirit, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen.